Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, June 26th, and this is the weekly roundup on the California Dream. This week, our theme is going to be California Can Do Better. So we're going to cover a number of different current events and topics in this episode. And for each of them, the thought I want you to come away with is that although California has responded to these issues reasonably well, we could have done a lot better if we were on our own, if we weren't uh, part of the federal system in the United States. I know that may seem like somewhat of a stretch, but I hoped by the end of the episode to at least perhaps get you to open your mind to at least consider the possibility. Before we get started with that, though, I want to turn your attention to some of our friends in the California independence movement. Hal Lore and Shankar Singham have their own podcast. It's called Red Star Report, and you can find it at uh, redstarreport.com. They also have Facebook page, Twitter, and a YouTube channel. So I would definitely go and check them out. Um, they cover a lot of the same topics that, uh, that I do here. And they have their own spin on things, and uh, they've got a really good show there. So go ahead and check them out. I'll put some links in the description and go give them a visit. So let's start with the economy. So if you listen to the mainstream media um, or even the local media, you might think that California is a terrible place for business, right? The taxes are so high. The regulations are so high. This is just a horrible place. I mean, if you listen to some people like Ben Shapiro, you might wonder why anyone would stay in California, especially somebody who has a business. Well, it turns out all that conventional wisdom might not be correct. In fact, it turns out California might be one of the best places for a business. And this is especially true as we're coming out of the COVID pandemic because it appears that California is one of the states that has handled uh, the COVID the best and is actually poised to, to grow the most out of it and to really come out of it maybe even better than before. So there's two articles that I will link to. The first is a Bloomberg article, and it's entitled, California Defies Doom with Number One U.S. Economy. And the uh, subtitle is, The Golden State Has No Peers When It Comes to Expanding GDP, Raising Household Income, Investing in Innovation, and a Host of Other Key Metrics. This is by Matthew Winkler in Bloomberg Opinion. So in this article, after pointing out the, um, the usual naysaying that's been going on for the last couple of years and for a lot longer than that, um, he says this, quote, no one anticipated the latest data readout showing the Golden State has no peers among developed economies for expanding GDP, creating jobs, raising household income, manufacturing growth, investment and in innovation, producing clean energy and unprecedented wealth through stocks and bonds, all of which underlines Governor Gavin Newsom's announcement last month of the biggest state tax rebate in American history. And he's basing this not just on GDP, but also on measures of productivity. 
For instance, he shows a graph um, of the revenue per employee that shows that California has uh, consistently overtaken the country as a whole over the past 10 years. He closes the article by saying, quote, investing in the future is California's way, the opposite of doom, unquote. So I think that's a good uh, summary at the end, uh, because California is the most forward-looking of the states. Um, we are usually ahead of the curve in uh, innovation, entrepreneurship, so this is not surprising. There's another article. This is from WalletHub. So every year, I believe, WalletHub ranks the best and worst state economies, and they haven't always ranked California terribly high, but it's interesting coming out of COVID, now they have ranked California really high. They ranked California number three. So they placed it only behind Washington State at number two and uh, Utah at number one. So that's interesting. So they gave, uh, they gave California a score of 66.83. Washington uh, scored 72, Utah 78. This was based on 29 key indicators of economic performance and strength. Now, what I find interesting is um, we hear all this talk about businesses fleeing the state uh, because it's such a terrible business environment here. Um, and let's compare some of the states that uh, we're told that businesses flee to. Um, there's Arizona. Arizona ranked number nine, so not too bad. Um, it uh, has a score of about 60. We're also told a lot of people are going to Florida, going from California to Florida. Well, Florida ranked number 23, all the way down at a score of 47. Um, then there's Texas. Texas came in 15th, score of 53. So-so. And Tennessee. So Tennessee, we're told about a lot of people going to Tennessee from California. Tennessee ranked all the way down at number 29, with overall score of 46. So, looks like all these people who are deciding to leave California to go to these other states, they may not be making the best decision, because California is still a very good state to have a business. And it's really not surprising the reason California is such a good state for business is because it decides to invest in things that other states don't always think is the most important to invest in. So California invests in education, it invests in healthcare, in infrastructure, um, in the social safety net. And when you invest in those things, you're going to reap the benefits later. So you're going to have a healthier economy. And other states just choose not to do that. And we can see the results in these rankings. So related to the COVID pandemic, um, until just a few days ago at the federal level, the eviction moratorium was scheduled to expire. So it was on June 30th that this was supposed to be the last day, which means that landlords would be able to actually go through, the, um, go through evictions. Now, in reality, They've already been evicting people in practice because they can start the eviction process and there's various things they can do to, um, to, let's say, prod or force people out even during the moratorium. But the June 30th deadline was coming up really soon and uh, 
This was turning out to be a real problem. On Thursday, the Biden administration extended the nationwide ban for another month. So they keep kicking the can down the road. Um, and uh, this is going to be July 31st now. And the CDC says, quote, this is intended to be the final extension of the moratorium, unquote. Well, we'll see about that. When we get to July 30th, they're going to have a decision. They're, they're either going to have to kick the can down the road again, um, or they're going to have to try and do something about it. Um, because there's a lot of people who have way too much back rent than they'll ever be able to pay back. And so either they're going to have to forgive most of that back rent, or they're just going to have to have a, a lot of people, a lot of Americans, go homeless. And I don't know what they're going to do. AP reports that by the end of March, 6.4 million American households were behind on their rent, according to Department of Housing and Urban Development. And as of June 7th, roughly 3.2 million people in the U.S. said they faced eviction in the next two months, according to the U.S. Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey. Now, in California, our governor, Gavin Newsom, has taken some steps that other states haven't to address this. He has agreed with legislative leaders to extend the moratorium in California until September 30th and also to cover 100% of the back rent owed by many low-income residents. So this is more than any other state that I'm aware of as far as the, the efforts taken to, to take on this issue. Now, let's talk a little bit about how all of this could have been avoided um, if the federal government had done better. I'm going to link in the description to an interview of Stephanie Kelton by Michael Moore. So this was way back over a year ago, at the very beginning of the pandemic. And she talked about what could be done um, at that time. And she said, look, um, what we should be doing is what uh, some other countries are doing, we should be in nationalizing payroll to some extent. Um, because if you nationalize payroll, you don't have all of these back rents being unpaid. And also, you don't have businesses that suddenly have a loss of cash flow and they start to go under. So this is something that was known at the time. Um, but again, it wasn't done. And now we're looking at the consequences of that. So I think if California was in charge of its, its own finances, had its own currency at the time, I think we would have had a, a much better shot of handling this better. Not saying that um, it would have been easy, but I think we could have pressured the government to do more at the time because Washington is really slow on its feet. And to be honest, they have a lot of people over there who really just don't care what happens to working people and small businesses. Next up. There is a Medicare for All march coming up on July 24th, so next month. Now, I'm going to talk about Medicare for All for just a few minutes. This is a topic that's uh, really important to me. Uh, healthcare is a big issue for me personally, but there's a lot of misunderstanding about how this issue actually plays out in practice. And I'll explain what I mean by this. There's a big push right now, um, especially in states like New York, to adopt uh, so-called state-based Medicare for All systems. In other words, an individual state um, will say, look, the federal government's not doing this. 
doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. So why don't we why don't we do it ourselves? Why don't we just among our state we will run a a single payer or universal healthcare system at the state level. Now, there's a number of problems with this, but the most important problem is if you understand the difference between a currency issuer and a currency user, then you understand that the states do not issue their own currency, which means they have to finance their programs through borrowing or taxing, just like you and I. This means that there are very few states in the country that could accomplish this. Maybe New York, maybe California, maybe a couple other states. There might be like three or four states that could uh, get away with doing this. And even they would struggle in a time I would say like COVID, if, uh, if California or New York had a state-based uh, Medicare for All system, I think they still would have struggled during COVID. Now, you could say, well, I don't understand. What's the difference? Why is it such a, such a hard thing for the states to do compared to the federal government? Wouldn't the federal government also have um, these, these issues during COVID that it would have trouble dealing with? Well, the difference is, Again, that the federal government does not have to finance itself with borrowing or taxes. When it spends, it simply spends into the economy. So it doesn't have to balance its budget. So if there's a pandemic and there's a big increase in healthcare costs, the federal government simply spends more money on healthcare. And that's the end of it. Now, a lot of people, when they hear something like this, they will say, oh, so you're saying they're going to print money. No, not exactly. It's not printing money. Um, it's, it's only printing money in the sense that every time the federal government spends, it's printing money. It's creating currency. This is how all federal spending takes place. And you'll notice this when there's something that Washington wants that doesn't have to do with healthcare or education or something for ordinary people. They have no trouble finding the money. They have no trouble... Um, spending the money without having offsets or without having pay-fors, they just do it. That's because they know that's how the money is spent. And so when you hear them say like, oh, we can't do this, we can't do that because we can't find the money, we can't do that, that's just not true. So this is one of the big reasons why I started seriously thinking about independence of California because I came to the conclusion that The United States federal government is not going to be spending on many of these things in the near future. I don't think for another 10, 12, 15 years. I don't see Medicare for all or another similar single payer or universal health care system being passed in the next 8 to 12 years at least. And given that I know that it cannot be done at the state level unless you are a currency issuer, the only logical conclusion to come to if these are the things that you want, is to have independence. This is how I came to this conclusion. So I'll talk more about this in the future. Um, I have a guest who will be coming on in hopefully the next month or two who is very knowledgeable about this type of stuff, and I'll have him explain the difference between currency issuer and currency user. And I'm sure he'll do a better job than me because he has a lot more experience talking about this kind of stuff.
Another area where California could do better than the U.S. is doing at the moment is in the labor market uh, and joblessness and homelessness. So a few months ago, a California commission, it was called the Future of Work Commission, and this was a group of leaders appointed by Governor Newsom in 2019, they prepared a report uh, about how California can uh, prepare for the future economy. And as the COVID pandemic uh, began to materialize, it really started to inform their work. And one of the uh, policies that they came up with that could uh, help California was a job guarantee program. Now, a job guarantee program is something that I will be talking about a lot in the future because a job guarantee program is really central to modern monetary theory, especially the prescriptive part of the theory, not just, um, not just the descriptive part. So the idea behind the job guarantee program is that the government acts as uh, an automatic stabilizer for the economy by offering employment to anyone who wants to work. Now, this type of employment is determined by local communities. This is not like make work. So it's not like a public-private partnership. It's not job retraining. Um, it could be really, uh, it could be anything. So for instance, um, if you want to teach chess at a local school, you could be paid to do that in the job program. You could be paid to be, um, you could be paid to stay at home uh, and help raise your kids. You could be paid to teach children to read at the library. You could be paid to go visit elderly folks who don't have many visitors drop by. You could be paid to do uh, local environmental cleanup projects. Basically, you could be paid to do anything that's not profitable in a capitalist system. And, uh, and what this does is not only does it, does it help the community, it offers a floor, a basic floor for wages and compensation and benefits that the private sector then has to match. So how does this help something like homelessness? Well, one of the ways it helps homelessness is if someone is homeless just because they're unemployed or they're underemployed and they just need to get back into the labor market, this immediately provides them a way to get back in. So they can immediately start earning a living. They can immediately start um, contributing back to their community. This really helps a person's uh, self-esteem, their mental health, and they can choose to either stay in the job guarantee program or they can decide um, maybe to transition into the private labor market. It would be up to them. But the point is that there is this floor that nobody is going to be left um, left to fend for themselves in the labor market just because there's no profitable employment willing to employ them. And this is a game changer. And the thing is that it has to be done at the level of the currency issuer. This, this is why MMT is so important, that this is a macroeconomic uh, policy it's not just something that should be looked at the individual or local level. It's also a, a macroeconomic solution to unemployment. And there's actually a congressperson who I believe has introduced uh, a job guarantee bill at the federal level, and it's Ayanna Presley. 
However, I don't really think this is going to go very far. If you take a look at the Republicans, you take a look at the filibuster, you take a look at everything. I mean, they can't even get the, the most basic legislation through. The idea that they would get a, a job guarantee program through at the federal level right now seems r- ridiculous to me. So that leaves us in the state where if we want a job guarantee program, it would have to be at the state level. And I think this is the conclusion that um, maybe even some state lawmakers have come to. However, what they may not understand is that if you're going to do the job guarantee program correctly at the state level, you kind of have to be independent. You have to be a currency issuer. You have to create your own currency. And uh, you can't do that within the federal system. The, the idea of implementing a state-based job guarantee program as an automatic stabilizer for the macro economy is kind of a, a misguided idea in the same way that state-based Medicare for All is a misguided idea. These policies need to be implemented at the currency issuer level. They cannot be done by currency users like states are in the federal system. And this is just one other reason why California would be better served on its own outside the federal system. All right, last issue for today. Um, The For the People Act, H.R. 1. Um, So, of course, we all know there's a lot of Republican opposition to this uh, because the Republican Party fundamentally doesn't believe in democracy. And it's true that this bill uh, does do a lot to correct some of the problems that we have uh, with, with voting systems in the United States, and it would do a lot to kind of curtail a lot of these efforts at the state level to suppress uh, voter turnout and to infringe on people's right to vote. However, I have learned recently, and I have to give credit where credit is due. So I learned this from uh, Jody Newell at Real Progressives. And it turns out that there's quite a few aspects to H.R. 1 in the sense that there are several poison pills in this bill that are really designed to exclude third parties or exclude anyone other than the mainstream Democratic and Republican parties from gaining a foothold into the election system. So just to give you one of these type of poison pills, um, H.R. 1 actually increases by a factor of five the amount of money that third-party presidential campaigns will be required to raise to qualify for federal matching funds. So it would go from $5,000 to $25,000. Okay, so that's just, uh, that's just one change there. It also eliminates the general election campaign block grants that parties can access by winning 5% of the vote in the previous presidential election. So for instance, the last couple presidential elections, a lot of uh, people on the left who are not uh, so satisfied with the Democratic Party, if they were in a safe state, would say, I'm going to vote for the Green Party because I hope they can make it to the 5% threshold and they would get some funding for the next, uh, the next go around. Well, that would be eliminated with this bill. Um, it would eliminate that provision, so that would no longer be an alternative way for third parties to get their foot in the door. One of the more troubling parts of the bill is it 
increases the amount of money that national parties can give to individual candidates from $5,000 to, get this, $100 million. So that is basically saying that the national party can just give a almost unlimited amount to an individual candidate. So they can, they can pretty much choose to flood any individual race uh, where there might be a third-party contender who is uh, gaining popularity. So why am I going over all of this? Um, I'm, not, I'm not presenting all of this because I have some kind of uh, horse in the race as far as a third party. I did get a lot of this information from the United States Green Party webpage. But I'm not really a big fan of the Green Party. Um, I know some people are, which is fine. But the reason that I'm really pointing this out is there are many ways in which it seems like good things are being accomplished at the federal level. And often there are good things being accomplished. But there's a lot of times these things that are put into bills that nobody even notices. I mean, I've heard hardly anybody talk about this kind of stuff. And, you know, if I hadn't come across a random video in my YouTube subscriptions, I might not even know about this myself. So think about how many other you know, good policies or good bills that you're aware of may have had these things in it that uh, you weren't aware of at the time or you still might not be aware of. Um, this is really, you know, some stuff that's really anti-democratic. And this gets into another aspect of why California would be better on its own away from the federal system. And that is that the two national parties, so the Democratic and Republican Party, really work to the detriment of California politics. So what I mean by that is, yes, the two-party system doesn't work at the national level, I don't think, for anybody in the country. But in particular, it doesn't work for Californians. Why? Well, most Californians are more on the left end of the spectrum. I mean, the Republican Party, let's be honest, it's pretty much a third party. Um, no party preference uh, usually ranks just above the Republican Party in terms of registration. So when you have just these two parties at the national level, and they kind of dictate what happens at the state level as far as party organization, what that means is you're left with the vast majority of the voters in California who find themselves more on the left end of the spectrum, left with really just a single party. There's no other choice because the Republican Party is not an option at all. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who are they're just not gonna, even going to consider it for good reason. But what that means is we have this one-party rule in the state and anytime there's one party rule where you have a single party that's just dominating everything, dominating the state offices, dominating the legislature, the governor, um, all the federal offices, that is just not a good situation because it breeds corruption and it also doesn't necessarily reflect the diversity of opinion and thought within the state. At the moment, if you want to get anywhere in California politics, you have to go through the Democratic Party. Whether you're, you know, kind of a centrist establishment uh, liberal or you're social Democrat, you know, to a Bernie Krat. Uh, so any, anyone along that spectrum has to go through the Democratic Party. 
Now think about what if we didn't have that kind of gatekeeping? You know, I can easily see we could have four or five different parties uh, if we had some kind of ranked choice proportional representation system like they do in other countries. Um, I could see us having kind of a mainstream centrist uh, democratic establishment type party. I can see us having um, more of a progressive party. You know, there'd be a little bit to the left of that. Then I can see there'd be an even further left party than that, you know, made up of Bernie Kratz and people to the left of, of Bernie, which there are quite a few people in California to the left of Bernie. There would also be a conservative party, you know, more along the lines of the Republicans. But because we wouldn't be in the United States system, hopefully it would have rejected the kind of authoritarianism um, that we're seeing in the national GOP at the moment. I could also see even, you know, a, a small Green Party, maybe even a small Libertarian Party. So I can see four or five or six uh, parties. And this would be really better for democracy in California. It would really be better than the kind of system we have now where everyone has to go through this single party. It's the only option available, and they just have a stranglehold over how everything works. All right, so I hope I've given you some, some things to think over, a number of different issues where Maybe I've opened your mind up to the possibility of how California could do things better, how California could be better if it was on its own and not part of the federal system. Before I close today, let me just remind you one more time, head over and check out our friends at Red Star Report. So you can visit their YouTube channel, just type in Red Star Report, or you can go to their website redstarreport.com. Uh, they also have Facebook and Twitter pages. And check out their podcast. Their podcast drops the same day that I usually put mine out, which is sometime on Saturday night, Sunday morning. So they just, uh, they just put one out uh, actually yesterday, I believe, June 25th. So each of us has an episode usually that drops over the weekend. So definitely check them out. Subscribe to their YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and all of that stuff. Okay, this has been the Weekly Roundup, and I'll talk to you next week.